Welcome back, everyone, to episode 61 of the Minot Business Podcast presented by Bennett Creative Media. I'm your host, Easton Bennett. And before we get started, if you have not already, please rate and review the show. It only takes five seconds to leave a rating and review, and it really helps spread the word to new audiences and attract new guests for you guys each week. On the show today, we have Alan Dostert. How are you today? Is that how you pronounce the last name? You're right. Dostert. I wasn't sure if it was Dostert or Dostert. Alan, how's it going today? It's going well. Thank you. Awesome. Alan, so for the people that don't know, they don't know what the business we're going to be talking about is today, but what do you do? If you saw me in an elevator, you had 30 seconds. What's your elevator pitch? Well, I'm the president and CEO of an architecture and engineering firm. I happen to be an architect by trade, but we provide full full services of architecture and, and engineering for building and industrial services. So architect, I always struggle with that word, <laughs> architecture and the engineering. When the business started, you mentioned before we were recording that it's two generations. Did it always start as both services or was it one or the other? Well, it was, it, it was formed in 1967 when an engineering firm, Engineering Associates, was okay. the name of that group, and Wells Denbrook Adams, which is an architectural firm, they'd been working together exclusively for years and they decided to join one firm. And uh, they, they've been working together so, so much that it just made sense to combine their forces and then go after bigger projects. Okay. So that's, that's the origins of EAPC. But that architectural firm went back to Theodore Wells, who was active in Eastern North Dakota in the teens and twenties. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it goes way back way then, back. almost a yeah. hundred years then. Well, yeah. For that part, that portion of us, I mean, we're, uh, we're celebrating our 56th year yep. uh, incorporated from 1967. And uh, yeah, the firm goes way back. That's pretty sweet. 56 years. So two generations. Did your, did your father start it? Your mother? Oh no. When I say generations, it was, there was a patriarchal group that started the firm and they, okay. and they recruited a, a, another wave of young uh, partners. Okay. And I'm that second wave of young partners that got recruited. Okay. So it's not a, not a family business then. Okay. That's no, an interesting, that's an interesting concept. So uh, let's go into the business a little bit more than what services do you guys specifically offer? So to give the audience a little bit of you know, maybe you can touch on some projects you've sure. done or some things that you've worked on. Uh, let's give the audience some context. Sure. We're, we're an architecture engineering firm. So the architecture side does typical architectural um, enclosures for all types of buildings. Um, we have five sectors that we uh, we organize our work around, but we do almost anything that moves, of course, in North Dakota, because you have to be a general practitioner if you're in North Dakota as well. Uh, but on the engineering side, we do structural, mechanical, and electrical. Okay. We also have an interior design group. And then we also do what we call industrial engineering, and that's in heavy industrial engineering works for like American Crystal Sugar or J.R. Simplot. Or for years, we did a lot of work in the ethanol industry, okay. which is really not the building sector, but it's a, it's its own sort of heavy industrial, heavy engineering side. And then we also have lean services uh, that we offer to our clients. And we have a new group called Marketing Works, which helps our clients with their branding Okay. And, uh, you know, right down to doing their stationery and their wallpaper and those sort of things. So it really kind of works well with our uh, interior design and our architecture group as well. Yeah, that's a lot of different branches. I didn't realize there was that many. They were a pretty diverse group. And it's really helped us over the years. That diversity, um, you know, there's never one sector that seems to be always on top or always on the bottom. Yeah. But there's ups and downs. It's a cyclical process as it is in, in the Midwest with any kind of uh, building or, or design sort of activity. So that diversity has really helped us uh, be around for 56 years. Okay. Well, let's get into, we'll get into kind of the transitions and different services you guys have implemented a little bit down the road. I want to talk about uh, your background a little bit more. So you sure. said architecture, that's kind of your background. 
when did you know, hey, this is something I want to go into? And what's your what's your background experience? Well, I was kind of a nerd in high school and even in middle school because when I was like 13 or 14, I knew I wanted to be an architect. Okay. I grew up on a dairy farm just, you know, 20 miles west of, of Minot here, right on Highway 2. Okay. And so Minot was always my stomping grounds. But my dad, being a dairy farmer, he didn't know a lot about architecture and engineering. And he called it architectural engineering. So I always assumed there was a lot of math with it. Well, yeah. So I was just a math head in high school and I took every kind of math class I could because you kind of had, you could go uh, business classes, math classes, voyage classes, and I yep. took every math class I could. In fact, when I was in, uh, in uh, high school, I took several courses of correspondence in, trig- or in calculus because I just assumed that the math would, would be a necessity. And I get to NDSU and my advisor looks at me and goes, what? what's with all the math? <laughs> <laughs> so as long as you know your basic math and you... Uh, and, and calculators can do that pretty well for you today's in architects is just fine with having basic math uh, and trigonometry sort of experience. Okay. So you were, you were, the math was the main factor of like, Hey, let's get into this. Well, when I grew up on the farm, my dad and even my grandpa, they did, uh, they did all their own, their own construction. They built their own okay. buildings and my dad converted a hundred year old dairy farm into a modern dairy barn. Okay. And we, we, poured our own concrete. We did all the systems, all the stanchions, all the things to take an old dirt floor manger barn into a modern dairy barn. And I watched my dad just kind of figure all those things up. And I just loved it. Yeah. And uh, as I said, everything we did from shingling to framing out stuff, uh, pouring concrete, we did it all ourselves on the farm. So it was kind of the construction side mm-hmm. that got me interested in the design side. So that was the, the roots of where I'm at today. So it was kind of ingrained in you growing up then the construction side of things. Yeah. You could say that for sure. It was uh, it was always something we did, and and uh, my grandpa and my dad were pretty accomplished carpenters in their own right for being yeah. a couple of farmers, um, and they just seemed to know how to do things. They had that sort of farm sense that they knew how to put things together, and that they kind of imparted that in, in me as part of my DNA, if you will. So then, growing up, uh, you maybe had a favorite then, but now is your favorite more so the design side or the construction side of things? Well, once I, uh, there was also a very artistic side that's in my family as well, and, okay. and the artistic side is what I really thought the architecture would really bring out, and it does. And that really, along with construction, um, it's it's the marriage of those two things that really uh, makes for a good architect or a good designer is not only being able to design really neat things, things yeah. that look good, but they have to function good, and they also have to be able to built yeah and not you know break the bank my uh i always tell people like i'm doing video production now but one day an interior design business i've always liked interior design for some reason so i'm like if videos ever fail if people stop watching this podcast i'll start doing some interior design i'm just so fascinated by like making things look good well you come call us and we'll get you a job there we go i was (laughs) like alan uh the videos (laughs) the videos are not working out um so you mentioned growing up uh just west of minot Mm -hmm. Berthold, I believe, is yep. it around there? That's where I graduated from high school. Yep. Perfect. So then, uh, do you know much about uh, the inception of EAPC? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, so give me a little bit about you know the vision behind that when it was first created. It's a pretty good story that goes with that. When EAPC was started, um, it really was engineering associates uh, and this group of architects, uh, Wells, Denbrook, and Adams. And when they put EAPC on the door, the thought process was, this is a vehicle from which you can retire from, and it's a professional corp, so we have privately held stock, okay. and that value is is, uh, value is established every year. Yeah. And so there was always a, a venue for it to uh, 
to buy your stock when you left. So the idea that there's nobody's name on the door is that EAPC would outlive any one of its uh, patriarchs or any one of its partners. And so far, it's been absolutely true. I like that philosophy of, you know, if you have Joe Johnson on the door in 1942, well, 2023, Joe Johnson's probably not around anymore. Right. And just like the Wells Denbrook Adams, which was one of the precursors, you know, obviously all those gentlemen have passed away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so EAPC, when, when, when Myron Denbrook became part of that, the EAPC legacy has outlived him now for several years. Yeah. Okay. So then when did you, when were you injected into the business? What does that transition look like? You know, from first generation to now. You're well, here. I, I started working for an architect uh, while I was in school in, okay. at NDSU. And that's a five-year program. Well, it's a four-year plus one to get your professional degree at that time. And uh, I started working for an architect my, after my first year of school. So I had four and a half years of experience working for an architect in in Fargo. Yep. And then when I would come home for the weekends or for the weekends and for the summers, especially, I started working for a local construction company here called Warner Construction Okay. Uh, and worked there all through my college career, um, worked for a firm in a couple of different firms in, in Fargo. And I ultimately went to work in Grand Forks for Schoen Associates, Bill Schoen and Jim Kabetsky. And that was a very, very uh, hot firm at the time. I mean, they did a lot of very significant buildings. The Ralph Engelstead, for instance, is one of the. Oh, really? That's sweet. And I worked for those guys for nine years, something like that. And yeah. And I uh, just decided, you know, with the amount of time I'm spending, I could spend this towards, you know, working for myself instead yeah. of for someone else. And EAPC hired me as, and uh, with the agreement that um, a one year um, internship as a, as a, precursor to being a partner, they would offer me partnership if it worked out. Okay. And they typically had three year associate positions. Yeah. And I said, guys, you know who I am. I know who you are. We're either going to love each other or hate each other at the end of a year. So yep. let's not, you know, dance this dance for three years. Let's <laughs> yeah. just, let's just move forward. If we think it's going to work. So a year later I became a partner. After uh, one year, they're like, man, we got two years left of this. We sh- we never should have done the three year deal. <laughs> that could happen. And it has happened. Yeah. yeah. So that's super interesting. The, internship to a partner. I haven't seen that very often. Is that kind of common or no? At EAPC, it was part of our DNA. They always had uh, internships uh, for partners who came in and they would establish goals for marketing and goals for management. Okay. Uh, you'd take care of a portfolio. For instance, when I first started, they they assigned to me the portfolio of taking care of our insurances. Okay. Well, you know, typical liability insurance and umbrella insurance and Mm-hmm. And then this wonderful thing called professional liability insurance, which is, <laughs> you know, like doctors and lawyers and, and yep. professional people have to have. You know, that was a world that I no one talked about that in school. And so yeah. it was sort of baptism by fire and, and got immersed in it pretty deep. And the best way to do it. Yeah. And, and early on in my career, I think they gave me some very difficult things, which really kind of set me up, I think, for where I'm at today. And those things are kind of part of my, again, part of my DNA because I started early on at EAPC with those sort of responsibilities and now um, I understand them very well. Other people take care of those things, Yeah, but I'm kind of that go-to person for a lot of it because it was assigned to me at such a young point in my career. So now you've made that transition from early on in your career. What does the day-to-day look like now? Well, day-to-day sure now <laughs> is a lot of administrative chores. Okay. Um, and podcasts. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's uh, equal parts of mentoring, um, 
and then design work and, and production work. Although I don't get to do as much of that as I really would love. I mean, that's what we go to school for yeah. is the design and the architecture side of it. And as your career, you know, gets more and more mature, we'll yeah. say, <laughs> I don't want to say I'm getting older, <laughs> yeah. but as that career matures, those responsibilities kind of change. You have to take care of others. Yeah. So you're mentoring and you're helping others with, uh, with insurances, with, design work with the construction questions and those sort of things. But then a big part of it is the people connection. I mean, architecture is so much about connecting with people and solving things for people. So business development is a big, big part of what I do today. So for someone that maybe is going into a role similar to yours or wants that role one day, what would you offer up as advice for being a good mentor? Oh, wow. For being a good mentor, you know, the first thing is just being a good listener. Yeah. And really sitting down and, and not only understanding what people are doing and understanding the questions they're asking, but understanding that in the context of where they want to be in okay. their careers yeah. and where the firm wants them to be in terms of their position within the firm. So there's a lot of variables there and a lot of things to sort of digest and just consider and say, hey, um, you know, you're really good at, at construction. Maybe this, you know, construction administration is something that serves you really well. Or maybe you're just a top-notch designer yeah. and you just have that that eye for things and you yeah. know how things should look. And in that case, you know, moving toward the design side of things and being sort of project managers on on, uh, on projects, big and small, becomes a real rewarding thing for those folks. So those folks, you don't put a hammer in their hand. You're no. like, you, you just keep designing. You're pretty good at that. I, I'm kind of a dinosaur. People joke about it, you know, my arms getting shorter. I won't be able to feed myself. I'll be a, <laughs> a T-Rex. But, um, you know, I grew up in a world where everything was pencil and paper and yeah. trace paper. And so oh, I suppose when we drew, we drew layers like they do today on computers, but it was all ink or yeah. on, on, you know, what we call onion skin or trace paper. So you could see the buildup of things, you know, you, the, so you put the, the shell down and then yeah. another piece on top. And you start rethinking, you know, the, the rethink um, is something that, for someone like myself that's trained by drawing yeah, to do that now on a computer, it takes a little bit for that transition. The young folks do it because they really don't draw that much in yeah. school, but that was the only way we did it when I was in school and, and well into my career. So uh, nowadays I still, um, the joke in the office is, you know, the power goes out or the computer goes down. I'm still working because I do everything <laughs> with a pencil. You know? Yeah. This is still my tool of choice. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I assume the the schooling, it does switch to computers now, whereas when you probably learned it was only pen and paper. So what was that learning curve like having to learn? Oh. Was it like you were going through school again, having to learn all the computer? Well, it was pretty steep. When my fifth year of school, they were just beginning um, vectorized drawing. And that's it. Okay. It wasn't AutoCAD. It was just vector drawing. You, in, if you want to draw something, you you input all these little points. And I remember we had an instructor who was really big into that. And he said, you know, this is going to be the wave of the future, guys. You have to figure this out. Yeah. So he got these uh, Tandy 1000 computers and he provided the funding for that himself. And then we had these seven inch uh, paper printers, seven okay. inch roll. And so he assigned us each something to, and we were teams of two to design something. So we, we're going to draw the Arc de Triomphe in, in Paris. Yeah. And we're inputting all these points for the Arc. And we got two thirds of the way through the Arc and we ran out of memory. <laughs> so, yeah, things have changed yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's probably when the computers were this big. Now we have a little memory card yeah. and it's like, oh, yeah, there's one terabyte in there. We started out with like uh, T 
candy was it TRS 80s. Okay. And of course, there was no drawing. You yeah. Use that for word processing and writing specifications and things like that. Five and a half inch floppy disks. Yeah. Which I think most people go, what? Yeah. They're like, what's a, a floppy disk? What? Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, I think our demographic for this podcast mainly is that. I want to say it's 25 to 35 is the highest percentage. It's like okay. 31% or something. So floppy disk, if you guys don't know, uh, give them a quick Google search. Podge the show, give them a quick Google search. Um, so let's talk about location wise now. Uh, you handed me a business card before we got started and had the uh, locations on the backside. Where was the origin location? What's what's the first place? The origins of EAPC really started in Grand Forks. That's where Engineering Associates and Wells Denbrook Adams were located out of. But they did their work in the entire that entire uh, uh, northeast quadrant of North Dakota, and yeah. they did and into Canada and into Minnesota for that for that matter. Uh, lots of schools, lots of city municipal buildings, those sort of things. Because when it started, you know, there was a there was just this wave of, of sort of urban renewal and things that were happening at the time. So there was a okay. lot of work to be done. Yeah. So then the the transition from Grand Forks. What was next? When did it end up getting to mine? You can kind of give me the lineage. Well, at that time, uh, I, for instance, my own career, I was working in a seven-state contract for GSA. Okay. And I was hopping in a plane two or three times a week and going out to Helena, Montana, or yeah. Colorado, um, or Pure South Dakota, or whatever. And here we are. You know, we were very, very busy. And uh, seventy-five miles south of us was probably one of the biggest markets we could address, and that being Fargo. Yeah. And you know, in those days, if you didn't have a presence in the city that you wanted to do work in, you didn't get a lot of work unless you really knew someone solid. And so we decided, you know, rather than, you know, going all over the place trying to find work, why don't we open an office in Fargo? And so okay. that was that was kind of our first first uh, venue into multiple locations. Of course, now we've got uh, nine offices in five states. Okay, yeah, that's interesting that not having so i wonder if that's every industry where it's better i mean it's obviously better to have a presence but you almost need a presence to get work in that specific city it, well it really helps for architecture because architecture is so culturally centered i suppose you know, understanding the people their needs you know um, what they've done in that community for the last hundred years is a lot about what they might do for the next hundred years so yeah you need to be responsive to those kind of things you have to kind of know what the area you're working in is going to be like Absolutely. so you can answer to that uh, we're going to get a little bit more into the architecture here but let's first hear from this week's sponsor midco is your business moving up and to the right put midco's business technology to work for you so you never have a slow day at the office from premium internet and phone plans to custom private networking and advertising they have a solution for every type of business large or small Get paired with an account representative to create your suite of services and make the switch with ease with dedicated business client fulfillment and support teams. No data caps, flexible contracts with month-to-month or long-term options, built-in DDoS protection, and more. Explore services and request a free consultation at midco.com business today. All right, Alan, let's get back into the questions now. So let's talk a little bit about the architecture and maybe some of the design, depending on what you worked on for these specific projects. But what are some projects that people in the Monarch community would know about that you guys have worked on? Sure. When we first opened this office, it was actually a response, not to a project we had in Minot, but a project we had at the International Peace Garden. Okay. And we had a young architect working for us at the time who actually was from Stanley, North Dakota, and he wanted to move back to his home place. And so, uh, you know, commuting from Stanley all the way to to the Peace Gardens for that project got to be a little, you know, a little tiresome. Yeah. So we said, you know what? This is a significant 
project, and there's a lot of us who have connections as part of the state. Why don't we open an office? And yeah. we did, and then he kind of ran that office for us, and we just kind of ran on a shoestring for a couple of years. We just we grew organically, meaning we didn't take on any other firm or any other people from a standpoint of absorbing another firm. Yep. Um, so the growth was a little slow, a little controlled, and it worked well. Um, we had, I mean, I was coming out here for projects, and when we open an office, we take a look at three types of sectors that we really are interested in in having some some exposure and some projects in. We always look at the municipal side of things, in other words, working for the city. Okay. We always look at education, whether it's K-12 or whether it's higher ed, we take a look at is there is there an opportunity to do educational projects? And the last piece was medicine. We Our firm has uh, those areas are very strong components of what we do. Okay. And when we opened this office, we uh, had some work for Trinity at the time. We did some... Uh, some code studies and some things for them that, that they needed to have taken care of. Um, I got basically in, in the old St. Joe's and the old Trinity building, I was above every ceiling in every room of both of those facilities. Really? Doing basically follow-up work for code and yeah. what they call an SOC, a statement of conditions. Okay. And so that really got us, uh, you know, we, it got us a presence here working for the medical side. Uh, we happened to get a very successful with a number of projects back-to-back from my state. And those are some projects that probably have the most noteworthy uh, appeal and sort of visuals is we did, uh, we started with the, uh, the all weather field. Okay. And after we did the all weather field, we did the uh, grandstands, if you will, or the, the stadium, we'll call it. Yep. And then the last piece was the press box. So, so that whole component was part of our work. And then we added some ancillary things like, uh, like the uh, scoreboard. Mm-hmm. And we actually had done some designs for them to put a potential bubble over the field, which they have now followed up and done. Yep. Um, but then in addition to that, at the, about that same time, the wellness center for, for the college oh, yeah. came up and we did the wellness center and, and you know, the real dynamic component of that building is the climbing wall Yep. and you wanted people to see it and it generates interest and kids look at it and they say, I want to be in there. I want to do something, even though they might not all be rock climbers and that sort of thing. It, develops an interest so there's a sort of severe angularity to that corner and a lot of glass that kind of showcases that piece which really helped them um, you know market the students on campus and make the students want to be in that building i think when people think about architecture and design a lot of it's like oh they made the building right where there's so much more that goes into it you know you mentioned scoreboard people might not think about a scoreboard a rock wall those are the things where it's like, oh yeah, they have to do the cool interiors of stuff too. And that's, that's one thing that I always think I'm like, oh, it's just the building. Like, oh, they built this building. But then you start to think about the insides uh, and it's, it's super cool to see. In architecture, our education is kind of gives you a glimmer into um, the different things that we're, that we have to take into account. When I went to college, I thought, again, I was going to be doing all this math and all this algebra and all these calculations. And the fact of the matter is our base of our education is theologies, right? Yep. Psychology, sociology, anthropology, and those sort of things. Because you really, if you're going to be a good architect, you have to understand the culture that you're designing for. Yeah. Whether that be a primitive culture, an advanced culture, or the culture in your hometown. You really have to understand what it all means to be responsive. Otherwise, you're just building. Yeah. And that's where, so going into maybe what makes you guys a little bit different then all of these architecture firms and design firms, they have their own unique selling point. What would you say your guys' unique selling point if they were, if someone was to hire EAPC compared to someone down the road? Sure. Um, 
couple of things come to mind immediately. We're one of the, we're the biggest firm, biggest AE firm in the state. And we're also the oldest AE firm in the state. Um, and from that standpoint, we always talk about, well, what does that mean anything to someone when you go to an interview and you tell them that, okay, it's just numbers, but you don't last that long and grow to that size without doing something well. And I yeah. think the thing that we do well is we listen. Okay. Um, we're, we're kind of a blue collar group of folks. Um, nobody really, uh, Get, let's their ego get out of out of control. We check our egos at the door. We really try to listen to what our clients need. And sometimes uh, that's probably been a knock on some of our architecture, but uh, I like to think our, our architecture and the budgets for architecture, um, the buildings that we do are very responsive yeah. to the client and they fit. And uh, the architecture and engineering both really helps us with that. And that engineering side makes us uh, a little bit different. There's not a lot of firms who offer both architecture and engineering. The engineering allows us a much better handle on what those things cost to do and you know how to make them comfortable and how to make them work well without uh, without forcing a you know a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. You know? So a lot of firms are one or the other? Correct. Okay. Well that's an interesting yeah that I mean that's about the number one unique selling point is that you guys do both. Yeah. Um so pivoting a little bit then I want to talk about you have some disaster relief experience. Yes we do. We talked about a story before uh, we started recording. You want to tell that story, uh, what people were thinking back in the day? Well, there's a couple of uh, things that come to mind. First of all, I lived in Grand Forks during the flood of Grand Forks. And at that time, uh, we did assessments on a lot of buildings. And um, I want to say there was close to 1,200 buildings we did assessments on. When we opened our office in Fargo, it was June of 2020. I'm sorry, 2000, June of 2000. And uh, they had like an eight-inch rain event yeah. in 20 minutes in, in Fargo. And I got this call from one of the major contractors that was kind of assigned to rebuild the, the, the campus and figure out what's next. And they called me and said, Alan, you're in Grand Forks, right? Now you got an office down here. I'm like, yeah. You went through the flood in Grand Forks, right? You <laughs> did. So do you have any experience in doing assessments of buildings? I'm like, yeah. Can you give us like the addresses of those buildings? I'm like, um. There's like 1,200 of them. Yeah. I, I can get, I have that list. Those things take me, and they, you're hired. Yeah. You're hired. Okay. <laughs> so obviously we showed some expertise in that. Yeah. And we ended up that weekend, this is in a weekend, um, inspecting and providing um, assessments, damage assessments of 19 of the buildings that got water damage oh, wow. from that rain event in, two, in June of uh, 2000. Um, so that kind of put us on the map. We yeah. just opened the office in Fargo. And remember those three components, you know, yep. city, the education, and the medical. Well, just like that, NDSU, uh, we got to know all the players at NDSU, and we became pretty trusted because we worked very hard to yeah. get that information into them. So now fast forward 2011. Of course, the flood hits Minot. <laughs> and again, um, we were kind of asked by the fire department who worked with the uh, worked with the government to provide assessments, and they said, uh, we need initial assessments of all the buildings yeah. that were damaged and we need it in two weeks. Can you do it? Two weeks. I thought, hmm. How many homes are that in mind? Well, the, or the, was it the homes basic, or buildings? Well, or uh, all, or it both? was started with just homes. It okay. Really, the commercial uh, structures weren't part of that per se. Okay. But the numbers were like this and these are, these are rounded a little bit, but 5,000 homes of touched by water. Yep. 500 that were significantly damaged. 50 were probably what we call red tagged and five were like totally destroyed. 
Really? If you look at it that way, that was, that's yeah. the basic numbers, just five, five, five. So um, we, we had talking about fives. We created five crews. Uh, we had a crew. Um, they used my dad's farm for a, like a bed and breakfast. Yeah. So we had a bunch of people staying out there with my dad and he really loved that at yeah. the time. I think he was about 85 years old or whatever. And um, so we had a, that group and then we had a group in town here that worked for us. And most of them were not affected by the flood. So that was a second crew. So they didn't really okay. have to commute. They were just here. Then we have an had an office in Bismarck, so we had a crew in Bismarck who commuted up during the day, and and uh, took on a big part of it. Yeah. And then we had our industrial designers, and and these guys are used to traipsing through uh, American Crystal Sugar and and food processing places and, and grain processing plants that are, are always you know the you know the, most, the cleanest. Yeah. Yeah. They, they can have some odors. <laughs> yeah. So they're probably, so, they're hopping on board. They're like, yeah, we'll do that project. Well, so we had them stay, quite frankly. We had, the, we, we created a little man camp out at the, at the um, FEMA trailer park. Okay, yeah. And so we had, they were allowed to stay there. And then we outsourced one more um, team from higher engineering, which was uh, Jim Hire and I are friends that go back way back, yeah. way, way back. And so we had these five teams. And so we'd work from light to light every day. And in fact, we got all 5,000 of the houses inspected and reports written in 10 days, 10 days, 10 days. How do you even, what were you, what were your emotions like when they said two weeks? Like what kind of undertaking was that? Well, knowing what we'd gone through in Grand Forks, I, you know, it wasn't and in, in the thing at NDSU as well. I knew what we were capable of. I just didn't know if we could put enough bodies on it because yeah. it just, it, you need, you know, several teams to do it. And in a perfect world, we would have had tablets with an assessment checklists and everything to just go 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 but we didn't have time to develop that we needed to start like the next day yeah and cj craven was a fire chief at the time and i got to know him pretty well during the process and ken sisk was his uh, person who was sort of assigned as a coordinator for that work and uh, we worked long and hard and uh, yeah. learned a lot about the city learned yeah. a lot about the different people uh, managing the city and so forth and uh, really got to know i mean i grew up here and i thought i knew the city pretty well yeah i I know it really well now. Are there some combatants now of uh, people telling you, Alan, do not open an office in our city? <laughs> well, that was kind of a joke is wherever I went, the water followed. So there's people who were like, hmm. Yeah. So far we've been dry. Yeah. <laughs> three cities, three floods. I'm like, yeah. the, track the track record's good for inspecting all the homes and the buildings, but... Bringing See, the water. See, I retired to Las Vegas. They better be careful. That's yeah. All I gotta say. Well, were you there a couple of weeks ago when they had that big? <laughs> no, but I did do a project there, and it was the first time it had snowed in like fifteen or twenty years. Oh, really? And my uh, the guy I was working with at UNLV says, "Doster, are you in town?" Because they had this big, huge rain, and he yeah. heard about all this before. He goes, "You must be in town. Yeah. It's raining the cats and dogs here." No, I'm not in town. Sorry. The bringer of rain. <laughs> the bringer of rain. So then. Um, what kind of emotions were going on in the community at that time? There's got to be some resilience, oh, yeah. but what was it like? I was only, I want to say, 12 years old at the time, so I don't remember it a ton. Well, there was there was a lot of different personality types that got affected by the flood. And being one of those people who went through it myself, had a lot of empathy for what they're going through, number one. But you know there's those folks who just want to roll up their sleeves, get to work, and start fixing things. Yeah. I remember a couple of folks had houses you know, the first two-story houses had the first floor stripped right to the studs. You could see right through their house. Yeah. And I remember what, and we said, you you really have to be careful. You can't just do this without, you know, 
and forth. Per, yeah. And this guy was looking at me like, well, what's the problem? It's my house. What are you telling me what to do? And I said, here's the problem. I said, we've got a big storm coming. It was just <laughs> purple. It was just blue yeah. in the West, right? And he goes, so? And I'm like, and I just leaned against his structure and his house moved over about yeah. three or four inches. I said, you have no <laughs> the house lateral fall support. on you. <laughs> yeah. This building in a windstorm could just push right over. Yeah. And so we had those people who, um, they were trying to do the right thing. They were trying to be aggressive to get it done. And then we came in and said, hold it. You, know, you got to do this and do it safely. Um, it caused some angst because yeah. they wanted, they, they saw that as nothing but you know, red tape getting in the way and slowing mm -hmm. them down. But obviously there's certain, certain, that's why we were doing it in the first place. There's yeah. the safety factors of protecting people. Um, and then we had some people who just seemed to not care and they just walked away. And some of those, you know, I don't know if there's a lot of those properties left, but there was a lot of properties for a lot of years that were just, you know, overgrown weed yeah. patches and people just, you know, it represented too much yeah. to come back to. And so you had those sort of, those are kind of the bookends and everything in between. And I remember uh, walking through an area close to the Roosevelt Park and people not happy with us taking pictures. Um, oh, really? They just, why are you taking pictures? Yeah. You know, why are you taking pictures of my house? I was like, well, I really have kind to. I kind of need it, yeah. And they're like, we're going to fix it. What, you know, what? Do you, there was a certain sense of, um, is this going to come back to haunt me? Is this going to be a problem? Because mm -hmm. they'd already had enough. They're they were kind of at their limits. Yeah. And you try to sit them down and say, well, you know, there's a process here that we're trying to go through to make sure everything is safe and everything gets done mm -hmm. done correctly, without trying to delay them or be you know an impact, a negative impact on yeah. the progress. So. That was, you know, you're always walking a fine line there. And so um, we always had uh, fire, um, the fire department was kind of in lockstep with us. And also concurrently, so was the police department in case there were any issues, because there were some people who just plain didn't want, did not want to have us access to their houses, period. Yeah. And so we had to sometimes get a little help. But generally, it was a, you know, it was a community that was, that that, that faction in the community was kind of broken and they were looking for help. And so they welcomed, you know, whatever could come in for the most part. It's crazy that the different walks of life, like my parents were flooded and they were gung ho about it. Let's fix this, fix this up. I don't, well, gung ho is maybe a strong term. I don't think they were like, let's do this. This is going to be so fun. Uh, and then you, like you said, there was the people that literally just left it and just left it there to rot. So I always like to hear the stories of people that went through it. I wish I was a little bit older to remember a bit more of it. Well, when you do lose a home like that, especially as a homeowner, and, you know, I don't know what my, my kids went through it in Grand Forks, but as you feel um, that inevitability, yeah, that you cannot stop it. Mm -hmm. that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, scary and and pretty uh, numbing and humbling feeling. Yeah, super interesting. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, it doesn't happen again to any cities that you're uh, opening any offices in. Let's pivot a little bit now into. A couple of your hobbies. So one being, after I did all this creeping and research on you beforehand, <laughs> uh, the photography aspect. So tell us a little bit about your uh, interest in photography. Well, I'm not a real professional photographer. What I like to say is I'm a contextual photographer. I okay. love driving around North Dakota, especially in some of these cities um, that at one time were thriving cities. And now there's maybe a handful of buildings. And I love how the buildings kind of go back to nature in a very organic way. And I've documented a number of old barns across, across North Dakota. And a lot of them today are no longer standing. And if I hadn't taken pictures of them at that time, there'd be no evidence that they ever existed. Yeah. Not just barns, but you know, houses and, 
Um, there's a house up close to Crosby, and I don't know exactly uh, the location today, but it was a very ornate house. Um, it had fish scale shingles on it, you know, very, a lot of hand details. And, okay. And you think about that building, when it was built, it was the most important thing that was happening for those guys who were building it, for the family who was going to live, in it, live yeah. in it, and probably in the surrounding area people, it was the happening thing. It was a very, you know, large house for its day, very ornate, big open stairwell in it, and of course completely abandoned. And the foundations are caving in, and the roof's kind of got a sway back in it. And you think um, now its value is what? Yeah, you know, almost nothing. And it was the most important thing for you know maybe twenty five, thirty people for sure at that point in time. So that's intriguing to me is that what Mother Nature does to what we do. And as an architect, you know, we do this built environment. Yeah, I'm constantly reminded that other than a couple of things in antiquities. Um, there's not a lot we do that survives, you know, the forever test. That's for sure. I was like seeing the thought process and photos of what happens when humans aren't there, right? Of what happens to buildings, what happens to land. Sure. And it is kind of cool. It almost just like eats it up, like engulfs the whole thing. So yeah. The buildings that, are so organic because they kind of start with, you know, the roof line kind of sags. Yep. And it's kind of broken down a little bit. And then pretty soon one end settles in. Maybe the footing or foundation <laughs> settle a little bit. And they just kind of like an old cow, you know, laying down <laughs> in the pasture. They just kind of slowly go to their knees and pretty soon the roof's yeah. down and there's nothing left. It is, it is fascinating. So do you think the photography side of that kind of ties hand in hand with your love for architecture and design? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's kind of the, uh, it's kind of the, the far end of that milestone of design is okay. What's the value of our buildings over time and, and how do they affect the next couple of generations and uh, being mindful of the fact that, that everything has a life to it and, you know, and buildings are no exception. Yeah. So then pivoting a little bit then into EAPC, the future, where do you see it going? What do you see this turning into what, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years? Well, we have North Dakota pretty well covered and, uh, you know, we continually look to grow, um, and there's just certain limits on that growth. For instance, our offices across North Dakota in Minot, Bismarck, Dickinson, Williston. Um, you know, at one point with the oil boom, what was that growth? Was it yeah. limitless? I mean, there's a limit to everything, but at some at one point, people were like, these communities are really, really going to grow. Yeah, and we were we were positioned long before the oil boom in all these communities to take advantage of that. Um, but obviously that has kind of plateaued out. Um, we see our position in North Dakota is just be solid and, and to continue to provide those services. Um, we try to diversify as much as we can to widen that market share. And that's kind of the reason we do some of the things we do in terms of the market works and the lean processes and things like that. But then we've also kind of gone outside the lines of North Dakota and we have offices at Sioux Falls and St. Paul. Okay. And, and the most recent office we opened is in Phoenix. And quite frankly, I think Phoenix is like the fifth fastest growing city in the United States. Yeah. And so we position ourselves in a community like that because you know how many people in North Dakota want to retire there? And Most of own, them. <laughs> and, and even our own employees. It gives us a landing pad for employees if they're getting closer to retirement to sit down and say, Hey, um, is there an opportunity for me to move to, you know, the Sun Belt, if you will. Yeah. And Phoenix seemed like a real logical location. And again, 
uh, we're not opposed to opening an office wherever we think we can really have an impact on those three pieces, the municipal work, the city work, the educational work, and, uh, and government work. How do you go about, I get if you're transitioning to a new city inside of North Dakota, so like Grand Forks to Fargo, maybe an easier transition. How do you go from North Dakota to Phoenix? How do you even break into that market? Well, we had a, we had some some people in our firm that were kind of medical experts and they were kind of, they were really determined that that's kind of where they wanted to move to. And so when they moved down there, um, we took that, that um, body of knowledge with us. And that seemed to be one of the sectors in Phoenix that wasn't being served exceedingly well. And that was the medical world. And uh, we knew that we could do it because we did it in, in St. Paul yeah. and had a lot of success and a lot of those really high end or, you know, sort of blue chip project managers, designers, uh, um, they had an interest in following up and doing more work than just, you know, St. Paul in yeah. Minneapolis. And so it just came, it was just a natural, almost organic growth, if you will. Um, and now it's just, it's really, it's really growing fast. Okay. So it wasn't as hard as, it, as you'd think it would be. Well, if it comes organically, you know, like I contrast that to the growth in Minot. The growth in Minot was very organic based on just building project by project by project and not having, you know, a, a real pent up need for a specialty. In other words, there's not a ton of medical providers, if you will, in Minot relative to like a Phoenix market. Yeah. So uh, it was a lot easier uh, to grow in Phoenix having medical expertise than in Minot. Yeah, just because of the number of opportunities, touch points that are out there. Do you think you can use that same concept in other business ventures where if someone's starting a different business ventures, you do have to go project by project by project? Well, we've had two types of growth, the organic growth, project by project that way. And the other one is sort of a, we've had a uh, an acquisitional sort of growth that we've done with a number of locations where we've actually come in and we don't really buy firms. Yeah. What we do is we find a firm, um, a lot of times architecture and some engineering firms, they weren't the best business planners in terms of their exit strategy. You know, one guy may have had a firm that was very successful for years and years and years. And here he's, you know, he's thinking, you know, I'll retire while I still have my health. Yeah. And uh, still I can enjoy life. And where's he at with survivorship, with succession? Mm -hmm. And we have offered that to a number of firms. Our Bismarck office, for instance, grew that way. Um, We basically didn't buy the firm that was down there, but we hired the patriarch of that firm and we hired the employees that he had. Okay. Uh, And then we worked out a contract with him to tail out and finish his projects with an employment contract that also said he would stay involved and use his... Um, presence in the community for business development. Okay. And it was, a, it was just a recipe for success. And that has worked quite well. Uh, so that's interesting. The, it's two the real absorption. different ways. Yeah. yeah. Two different ways we've done it. It's more so a partnership rather than like a hostile takeover. Like Absolutely. we're purchasing you and we're going to fire your employees and just take your, your IP. So I, I like that there's two different routes. Uh, if you had to give advice to maybe architects coming out of college or maybe just people that are, looking to get into the industry, what would be your advice to, to make your mark in the industry and to get your foot in the door? Well, um, I look at young architects and young prospects, even in school. Um, and I'm on the advisory council for the architecture and landscape architecture board in, uh, at NDSU. And when people ask, you know, what should I be showing to get a job? You know, what should I be doing? 
And my answer is, and it might not be for everyone, is I want to hire people who are good people. Yeah. And it's not that I want to see you're a member of such and such a church, but or things like that. But that's part of it. But what have you given back to your community? What have you been involved in? Have you been involved in uh, in United Way f- fundraising? Have you done things for the Boy Scouts? Have you done things to give back to your community? So I'm looking for for good people. Yeah. And I'm looking for people with focus. So when they show me their portfolio and things like that, I really don't look at the context of look at this great idea. I yeah. look at how good did they organize their thoughts and how good did they present it. Yeah. I can take people like that and they can become a tremendous architect with, with mentoring. It's easier to teach those things on the back end, right? Right. If you have the the base foundation, then it's easier to teach the things you need. But the one thing I do tell students, especially if you want to really advance in your career, it's about knowing about buildings and knowing about how to put things together. Because if you're struggling with, you know, how is a building put together? Yeah. How do you ever start addressing the cultural significance of the client you're working for. Yeah. So I always tell students um, who are going to college, if you get a chance, go to work for a contractor. Yeah. I used to joke all the time that 51% of what I know I learned from my time at Warner Construction. Yeah. Because uh, just a little bit more than half. Yeah. Um, and the rest I learned in school and, and, and uh, from other mentors in the architecture program. But that construction knowledge is so valuable because it, it takes that, con- you know, the confusion and the, fog on how you build a building out so yeah. now you can concentrate on what you need to do for your client i was gonna say it'd be hard to design or architect something that's you don't know how it's built you're like ah this would look cool but i'm not really sure how that wall would fit in with yeah. this yeah even from uh, licensed architects that are out there that they come up with something and it's like well that cost a fortune to do why, yeah. why did they do that yeah was that for someone's ego or was that was that really what the client wanted yeah you know? no that make that makes a lot of sense uh, Alan, that's all I got for you. Where can people find EAPC? Where can they get a hold of you guys or see some of the work you've done? Well, you can get us uh, online. Um, our, uh, you can take a look at www.eapc.net. Uh, we're in Grand Forks, Fargo, Minot, Bismarck, Williston, Dickinson, Bemidji, Minnesota, St. Paul, uh, Phoenix, as I said, and then also we have an office in Sioux Falls. So you know, if you're in any of those cities and you want to stop by, our partners and our staff are always willing to sit down and talk to people. If you're a young person in the in the industry, we love uh, having those conversations and, and potentially being, a, even if it's a couple hours of mentoring and helping someone through the process, come stop by and say hi. We'll always, uh, we'll always spend some time with you. That's awesome. Alan, thank you very much. 56 years. Congrats on 56 years. Hopefully another 56 after that. Thank you very much for coming on the thank show. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was episode 61 of the My Not Business podcast. Thank you guys again for listening and watching, and we will see you guys next week for episode 62.